Um, so today I'm going to talk about uh, Iran of the Pahlavi era, the Shah's government, and the Arab-Israeli conflict, a topic that um, has been often spoken about. But I hope to show that with the, with the archival, with the new archival uh, holdings at, at, at the Zahiri archives at Hoover here, um, we can sort of open new vistas to them. Um, it is well known that Iran of the Shah had rather close ties with Israel. Under uh, the Shah's government, there were security ties, there were energy ties, there were commercial ties. Many Iranians uh, visited Israel. Um, there are generations of Iranian babies who used to be called Israeli babies because the Iranian mothers would go to get fertility treatment in Israel. Um, there were Iranian singers uh, who would sing in Israel. There were Israeli singers who would sing in Iran. There, there were rather extensive ties. While unlike what many think, um, the two governments didn't actually have official ties, open ties. I, there were not official diplomatic relations between the two countries. The question is, what explains these close ties between Iran and Israel at the era? Um, and, and what was really the nature of them? Um, you know, if, if they were so close, how come they weren't open? These are some of the questions I hope to talk about today, based on my research and based on my findings. Now, there are usually a few explanations given uh, uh, to explain uh, the reality of these ties. One of the most popular ones is the sort of periphery policy, or the periphery, periphery policy. Uh, it is well known that the government of David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, had a policy that since Israel obviously could not be friends with its neighbors, it should be friends with the neighbors of its neighbors. I, since it was in conflict with the Arab countries surrounding it, it should, be, it should build links with the non-Arab countries of the Middle East, the fellow non-Arab countries of the Middle East, that is Iran, Turkey, and, and Ethiopia. Um, there were many reasons for these links and they set a time. Then there's a Cold War explanation. I naturally, since Iran and Israel both found themselves on the side of the US in the early 50s, first years of the founding of Israel and the first years of Mohammad Reza Shah's really return to power following the 1953 coup in Iran, naturally they would be on the same side. Um, and there's of course this sort of the official Islamic Republic narrative, if you will, which actually it's kind of also very close to what was the official, um, I would say perhaps the new left explanation at the time, the opponents of the Shah's regime had a very basic answer. Of course, Shah has good relations to Israel. It's subservient to the US. It does what the US tells it. That's why it has good relations to Israel. If you notice what all these explanations have in common is that none of them actually explains the motivations um, of the Shah regime itself um, and of the country of, of a country like Iran, which had a diplomatic apparatus, which, which, which had you know, which had its own independent policy making. Periphery policy explains it as a policy of Israel. The other explanations also explain it as policy of the U.S. But why did the Shah regime, um, why the Shah itself and the Iranian state decided for this? Um, there's also a lot of discussions when it comes to Iranian foreign policy of that era of the role of individuals. Since we often don't have access to diplomatic archives, we have access to memoirs. So there's a lot of discussions actually about the role of Ardashir Zahedi, um, who was seen as, as negative at the time, was seen as negative by, the, by, by some in Israel um, and by some, like Mayor Ezri, a sort of very well-known Iranian sort of Zionist activist uh, who was, you know, who lived in Iran and often acted on behalf of Israel in different ways or as in between. Um, and this is again explained in many memoirs as to the role of Ardashir Zahedi when he was foreign minister and was leading Iranian diplomat. 
Um, there is even a mention of Arjun Zahiri's sort of possibly negative role when he leaves the foreign, uh, foreign ministry in 1971. He's no longer prime minister. Davar, which is a major newspaper in Israel, explains, you know, sort of celebrates that almost or talks about it as a fact of, you know, um, this was good news for Israel relations. But what I'm hoping to um, talk about today um, and the approach that I'm hoping to suggest is that if you want to understand Iranian foreign policy, if you want to understand how it is made, what were its motivations, what were its sort of uh, uh, contradictions, um, we are well served to look at the Iranian archives, just like we do with any other country. In fact, it's a striking um, that because of the sort of lack of archival resources sometimes, we can read pages after pages about sort of foreign policy of Iran at the time, based on a variety of, of guesses, of uh, insinuations, but not, you know, not the actual archival records. So, and even memoirs basically have that quality. I mean, what does it really mean that a person was known to have this view or that view based on memoirs that were written 50, late, 50 years later? There's no other country, again, if you pick up a book about US foreign policy, you, know, you rarely are going to have as main explanator. I mean, the job of historians uh, is usually to look at basically archival record at a time, not recollections um, of, of later years of memoirs. Of course, they can be important and they can be added on, but not as the main. Now, but of course, this would be easy to say when we don't have the resources. You know, it would be a very classic historian thing to say, oh, well, it would be great if you have these archives, um, but we don't really have them. So what does it really mean? Well, I'll go to this and then back. Well, now we do, <laughs> as I have discovered to my delight in the last two months, the Zahedi papers at Hoover present a truly golden opportunity to go and look at different levels of decision-making, um, to go and look at, as, at how policy was made in Iran inside the foreign ministry, and to go and see what were the different contradictions um, while the policy was being made. These archives are not complete, of course. They're not a replacement of um, the full diplomatic archives you find in other parts of the world. Um, Professor Milani has written and explained in his work how Adish Zahiri himself apparently actually had a key ro uh, role in bringing sort of professional note-taking um, to foreign policy meetings. Um, but of course, Adish Zahiri was foreign minister, you know, in a relatively sort of short period. And then he was, and he was an ambassador to the United States also in two periods, but there's before and after. It can be frustrating um, when you're following something to see that there's a gap. Um, it is also not clear uh, entirely, you know, what were the documents he was able to get out. Uh, you know, I'm sure it was not sort of in ideal conditions necessarily, but nevertheless, what is very clear in the last two months of me going every day to over and spending a few hours there, that there's a belt of information, belt of Iranian foreign policy documents um, that certainly are enough for, I think, my lifetime of work and, and, and a few others. So basically, students who want to work on this and the scholars, I think, don't have, no longer have an excuse that we don't have. These archives are particularly rich because they include a variety of sources. They include published, um, I internally, internally published, sorry. Um, I don't know why my phone gets provoked by the word publish, but 
uh, um, be it internally, um, like internal really top secret documents, but they also include a variety of levels. There is there is this sort of form of document called Sharaf Yabi, which is basically a document of, uh, for the view of the Shah, um, a summary of things that happened that Shah has to see. There, there are different versions of these documents, right? I mean, there is the final version, there's the edited version, there's a version coming from the other side, um, how they have been mixed. Um, there are press clippings. There, apparently, the very interesting service existed at the time. I was shocked to learn this, um, where you could, there were agencies where you could hire and see, you know, whenever my name comes in the press, because it was a very vibrant press in Iran in, in certain periods, 41 to 53, just bring it to me. And some of this exists in the Fazlullah Zaidi spot. And of course, relevant to my topic, Fazlullah Zaidi was interned in Palestine, actually, when Palestine was a site of um, British internment camps and Fazlullah Zaidi was there, so that's his recollections. So a very rich source exists here. I don't know, and I wanna go back to, this is the, sort of one of the titles of my dissertation, running titles of my dissertation, Cold War from Below. Um, you know, when Roma was reading it, you might have, Notice that oh, it doesn't seem to be directly the water participation doesn't seem to be directly related to the talk. I think what is related is the approach of what I call Cold War from below. I, the studies of the Cold War have often looked at superpowers um, in, in Moscow and Washington to explain this. In fact, if you read some of the central, um, you know, important narratives of the Cold War, let's say John Lewis Gaddis's Cold War, the only the only actors that really appear are not even sort of members of parliament. They're, they're usually leading government figures on both sides, um, but both sides being the Soviet Union and the United States. I think research here shows that I, I mean Cold War from below in two sets. I mean that on a societal level, people were involved in the Cold War. They cared about this global struggle that was going on. And on the, on the country level, they, um, they also cared about it. I, the Shah of Iran was not a passive subject of the Cold War. He was not a victim of superpower uh, uh, sort of power uh, games between each other. And he was not also in another tradition that exists in the Cold War. He was not someone who was, this is often said about the President Nasser of Egypt and others, but not someone who was just trying to um, smartly play the superpowers against each other like mommy and daddy and sort of had no interest of his own. I hope to, to show um, that that's not the case. I hope to show that the Shah of Iran, Iran of the family era, had in fact a conscious, consistent foreign policy that was not like, like all other, other policies, it wasn't always followed, but that if you look at it throughout a long uh, period, you can see elements of it. And elements that are frankly surprising or certainly go against um, some of the dominant assumptions we have. Now, I want to also emphasize that, like a good historian, I have really been uh, guided um, by the archives. I, I have been guided by the empirical evidence. In fact, for some other work that I had on Iran and Vietnam, I really started out showing how Shah followed US's policy in Vietnam. I thought that was the paper. It turned out that my paper, uh, about a different topic, turned out to be about perhaps the opposite, i.e. how Shah did not follow US policy in Vietnam. So I think it's good. Um, I think it's good to remember that. Now, let me start with um, what is called Siyasat Mustaqil National Independent Policy. Throughout this period, Shah kept claiming that Iran follows what he called National Independent Policy. 
In Persian, we don't have a system of capitalizing words, but this basically appears like a, cap like a capitalized, like a central phrase that is always used. I, it's not just that he said we have a policy, you know, it was not just that he was trying to use nice words like national independence. This was a, this was a consistent phrase uh, used by Iran. And in fact, if you see this newspaper title on the top, it says, why is West working against Iran, the national independent policy? I, not only the Shah was meant to say that he follows the policy of national independence, he also saw that in contradiction, not just with the Soviet Union, but, but with the West. And it sort of counters our dominant image of a West following Shah that we have. Now, what did national independent policy mean, mean when it comes to the central conflict of the era in our region, on the Middle East, i.e. the Arab-Israeli conflict? And I use Arab-Israeli conflict, I think I used Palestinian-Israeli conflict in the previous iteration. To be clear, I use the, the term Arab-Israeli conflict to talk about the broader, right? not just Israel's clash with the Palestinians, but Israel's war with the Arab countries, right? Egypt and Syria chiefly, um, and the series of war in 1948, 1956, 1967, 1973 um, that, uh, that he had. So we wanna see what was his national independent policy um, in relation to in relation to Israel Palestine. And was it really, you know, was it how national and how independent was it perhaps we can talk about, but also what were its elements and what did it actually mean and what evidence do we have in this circle record to, to, to say this? I think it would be necessary to give a very brief overview of how did, I don't have it in the slides, but uh, I think I can do it on the fly, as I say, um, of to what, what, what were the relations, how did things stand between Iran and Israel Palestine? Um, Iran, so, you know, I assume you know the basics, obviously, following the First World War, Palestine, which used to be part of the Ottoman Empire, forms, uh, it un comes under the control of Britain, the British mandate of Palestine is formed. In 1917, the Balfour Declaration promises a Jewish national home. There is sort of Jewish settlement in, in Palestine. Iran, as one of the major states um, as one of the major states of the era, um, had, uh, had the consular presence in Jerusalem already. Right? There was an Iranian consular presence uh, in Jerusalem. And following the First World War is also when we have the formation of the League of Nations, um, of which Iran is a, it's a very, it's the only Muslim country that is actually there. Are we good? Sorry. I think I should do. <laughs> Um, Iran was the only Muslim country that was a, a founding member of the League of Nations. Um, Turkey and Iraq joined in later years. But the point is, Iran was a, had a statehood. This is very important. Iran, unlike many other countries, unlike all Arab countries, effectively, has a statehood uh, history that goes, a statehood and sovereignty history that goes back quite a while. Now, in the early years, um, so, so long as you can say Iran has a policy, Iran is Iran of the, this is the sort of Pahlavi era, first the Reza Shah, the father, and, and, and the son who comes in 1941. But the, the general approach is actually pro-Arab, obviously, and the, the Arab opinion um, is opposition to Jewish settlement in Palestine, and Iran generally follows that. In 1935, Bahar Qazimi, Iran's envoy to the League of Nations, speaks, um, you know, speaks sort of in favor of the Arabs of Palestine, so much that he actually gets a note of thank you from Hajj, uh, I mean, Hosseini, the famous or infamous view Mufti of Jerusalem at the time was, this is just a one year before the Arab revolt. Um, when, after the Second World War, 
when, Pal when Palestine is going to be divided, so the United Nations obviously decides at some point um, to divide Palestine into an um, Arab and a Jewish state, right, in, in November of 1947. But prior to that, actually, Iran, again, shows you the long history of Iranian statehood. Iran is one of those states that gets a chance to send a representative and be part of the UN um, system that goes to sort of visit Israel, Palestine, prepare a report, plan what to do. Nasrallah and Tazam, who later is the president of the UN General Assembly, is the Iranian diplomat who goes there. In recent years, we've had some, this is how memoirs can be found. So, so the memoirs of people who was in the street, that there was Latin Americans, um, and there were obviously sort of representatives of the Jewish agency of, of what's called the issue. Um, they've published some memoirs that shows, shed some interesting light on Tazam and sort of his views there. I think like a lot of people, he was he went there with a sort of pro-Muslim and pro-Arab uh, orientation, generally speaking. But he was impressed by what the Jewish community had been able to achieve. Um, but at any rate, the attitude of Iran is very clear in those years. Iran, together with India and Yugoslavia, presents an alternative plan. Right? It's against the division or the partition of Palestine, and it was called. It presents a federal plan that is rejected by the UN. The UN goes for the partition plan. And in the next few important votes, Iran votes against the membership of Israel and the United Nations. Now, these are very sensitive years. Um, be conscious of the time, even though I have a very generous time here. Um, these are very sensitive years in the history of Iran, of course. In 1941, Reza Shah is overthrown. Muhammad Reza Shah comes to the throne. We have 12 years of relatively open conditions of the press. Um, the Iranian parliament you know, has genuinely democratically elected members who are able to voice views on certain things. The issue of Palestine becomes very important. So if I want to paint a very brief view of how this political scene is viewed at the time, the Tudor party of Iran, the communist Tudor party of Iran, which was formed in 1941, um, is unique in uh, having a lot of Jewish members. It's one of the first parties that allows uh, Jews to join, and it has a very active sort of Jewish membership. As Lior, historians like Leor Stenfeld has shown, they these Jewish Iranians come to play an important role in the party, um, but also not just because um, of the Jewish Iranians, but because the general line of the communist movement in the world, the communist movement led by the Soviet Union in 1947, changed its line on Zionism, had sort of had decades long policy of opposition to Zionism. It adopts a new line that sort of generally um, recognizes the Jewish right to self-determination. So as a result, the Tudor party of Iran, it's the biggest proponent of ties with Israel. Not only it calls on the Iranian government to recognize Israel and establish relations with Israel, it celebrates Israeli independence. In the Iranian to the party meetings, to the youth meetings, Hava Nagila, which is something of a Hebrew hymn, um, careful to say, not it's not really a Zionist song, I, I just to say, but it's definitely a song that comes out of the issue. It's, it's sang between, um, it's sang in sort of communist meetings by you know Jews and non-Jews and so on. And as I said, the Communist Party, if you look at the uh, meetings are just like the Communist Party in the United States, actually, and the Communist Party of Great Britain, Communist Party in many other countries, calls for open relations with Israel. Um, at the same time, there is the Pan-Iranist Party, which is sort of anti-Semitic. It works against sort of, you know, it works against Israel. Obviously, it, it, it speaks against it. Ayatollah Kashani um, claims that he's going to uh, gather some people to bring them to Palestine to fight in the 1948 war. Um, to my knowledge, this didn't actually happen. Ayatollah Kashani was not able to mobilize anyone and take it there to fight the, to fight the 1948 war. Um, but he definitely does claim that he's going to do it. 
The Mufti that we just talked about, who had tanked Iran in 1935, he sort of active in the Iran press. He gives an interview to the Kehan against against the Jews, as he says. You know, he sort of speaks in a very anti-Semitic language against international Jew, um, and he warns against Israel. So Israel is being discussed um, now. Mohammad Mossadegh, who uh, who is a you know who is obviously a proponent of uh, independence uh, for Iranian oil sector, for nationalization of Iranian oil sector, he comes to the scene. The movement of Mossadegh is viewed positively by some in Israel who see it as a fellow um, fighter against the British imperialism. Of course, Israel had come to be by fighting the British mandate, the British occupiers. So, in fact, you'd be surprised perhaps to know that Israeli right wing, uh, the revisionist party, this is the right of the Israeli uh, political scene, which is very sort of anti British, more, even more than the, uh, the dominant trend in Israel, which is social democratic, but less anti British. Um, they, they celebrate Mossad, the revisionists celebrate Mossad. At any rate, um, Iran recognizes Israel de facto when parliament is in recess under the government of Mohammad Saeed Maraghi, interesting prime minister born in Tbilisi. Um, and when the Mossad government comes, it's one of the first acts that it does is actually takes back the recognition. There are some murky accounts here because they sort of say there's a financial reasons they take it back. But long story short, um, there, there's definitely some in the Mossad government, including Fatemi, the foreign minister, who seem to have had a negative view. See, I'm doing what I sort of criticized earlier because we don't have a lot of accounts from the era. So we have to sort of go by what, what we have. But Fatemi definitely gives the speech in the parliament against, um, against Israel. Lines of, um, lines of conflict are being developed in, in a, Different way. This is Nasser hasn't come to power in Egypt right, yet, right? That happens in 1952. But already Fatemi imagines a world of um, Iran allying itself with Arab opinion in a way that would be anti Israel. It seems to be happening. Well, obviously, in 1953, US backed coup in Iran puts an end to, um, to sort of an environment where that can be discussed freely. Um, and a different line follows. In the same era, I should also mention that there are some in the Iranian. Politics like, say, Hajali Razmara, well-known uh, army figure, who are also pro-Israel because they see it as a, you know, as a, uh, as a sort of very competent army. But the love relation between Iranian, let's say, left and Israel, of course, continues uh, for decades after. Again, these are parts of the history that sort of sometimes are forgotten, but this exists a lot, of course. Um, Jalal Ahmad goes to Israel, writes a very glowing. Uh, travel log that criticizes later, Darush Ashuri and others, they look, they look into Israel, interestingly, as a sign of sort of national spiritual awakening. They look at it and, uh, you know, they look at a sort of kibbutz example as a sort of communistic ex example. Um, but they, they kind of, the kind of line that becomes dominant in late 60s and early 70s is very different. So to say, this was to set the, set the scene to sort of Iran, Palestine, Israel. But then what is Shah's, what is Shah's actual policy? My argument is that, in fact, Shah's policy on Israel cannot be explained by subservience to the US, because he wasn't subservient to the US always. And he cannot be explained on a sort of a basic global level, but that, in fact, it is consistent with what he called national independent policy. Now, independence is always a, you know, it's, there's a normative value. We can talk about what you consider independent or not, but I'll try to show how you know, there, there, there are elements um, that if you want to adopt a framework, this framework of national independence policy seems to explain um, 
Charles policy on this issue. Now, two quick sort of disclaimer about how I'm going to do this. Number one, I'm in the middle of this research. <laughs> so there's a lot more to learn. I think there's months more of reading. Um, you know i started tagging what documents are related to this topic and i realized almost every single document there is related because israel palestine comes out in every conversation um and of course i could go through the wars one by one and sort of look at iran's policies there but i think that wouldn't be as interesting um and i haven't done work with all of them the 1973 war is challenging for example because i was not prime minister then um was ambassador to the us but they have different sort of files from there but I'm going to talk about few aspects of how Shah approached the question of Israel-Palestine. And I hope there that I can show that it was consistent with his claim to a nationalism policy. And that perhaps this helps us have a different view of Shah's foreign policy. Now, as a you know, lifelong polemicist, <laughs> historian, sometimes I try to push in one direction or sort of, I put a question mark, sort of think us differently about something. Um, I'm happy to be pushed back on, uh, you know, on some of these claims, um, but I think nevertheless, it's coming in there. So I would say, I would sum up um, briefly the national development policy with you. I would say that Shah was definitely an anti-communist. He was very clear, he hated communism. He thought communism should be fought. He hated the to the party in Iran. He was afraid of the Soviet Union. And globally, he, he, like many other states under the era, he believed that communism was a global threat, right? The, the specter of communism threatened him. Um, but it's important when we say that to remember what kind of anti-communisms are we talking about? Because there are many different sort of anti-communisms. He is, he is a guy who claims he's a socialist. Again, you shouldn't forget. In fact, you know, I have to say, sort of my personal memories, I remember the first time I, um, um, I met the, the former queen of Iran and Farah Pahlavi, and you know, we were talking about sort of Marxism, different ideas for the era. And she said, well, you know, Shah was a bigger socialist than all of you. And he was a true socialist. And this, this I think it's important because we will see in the archival record, how does this show itself in the archival record? It shows that Shah, when he follows a policy, he believes that the way to fight communism is development. Now we can call this Bismarckian. I long ago, Otto Bismarck, Chancellor of Germany, had this idea that the best way to fight the Social Democratic Party in Germany is to adopt policies, basically preempt them, adopt policies that help development. This was, of course, Kennedy's line in the United States in the Cold War. It was, it was a way of fighting the Cold War, but that's, I think, very important. So, Charles is anti communist, but he believes, um, he believes in a state led development. He believes in a state led development and he believes that a form of what he considers socialism needs to be there to give people um, what they need so that they wouldn't turn to communism. Um, he had, was a big proponent of the regional states. I, the relation between Shah and the United States and some other forces as we can see often goes through him supporting the other regional states. The King Hussein of Jordan, as we'll see, is an important part of this, and other states. I, he's worried about the stabilization of the region. He's worried about the growth of the forces that, after all, he has seen throughout his reign. He comes to power in 1953, he has to live through just imagine yourself the ride that he has to go through before his overthrow in 1979. The 58 revolution in Iraq, the rise of Baptism. Um, you see kings fall around you. Um, it's, it's important. So that's an important element of his, his approach. The one that might surprise some of you um, is that he also cares a lot about the Muslim world. He believes, he believes in the concept of the Muslim world, you know, his words, not mine, um, and he believes in it. Now, I think um, Professor Milani 
in his biography of the Shah also sort of claims that what one of the things that really distinguishes Shah from his father is his approach to Islam, um, of how he prioritizes Islam against communism sometimes and how sort of he views this question and his personal um, sort of religious views. But at any rate, Islam is important for him in a flexible manner, of course, and in sort of a civilizational manner. I, it's not sort of, we all know he wasn't a very um, great practitioner of Islam necessarily in his, in his daily life, but um, at any rate, um, he cares about Islam, he cares about the Shia faith, he cares about supporting religion in some ways. But I think what really interestingly brings a lot of this together is how much he cares about his alliance with Turkey and Pakistan. Again, I'm very grateful for the archives because there we can see that there's so much rich material um, there. I've also looked into other archives, like the National Archives of Britain about this. Um, so, but the center organization that I mentioned, the Central and Regional Cooperation Development, RCD, this is Iran and its two big Muslim neighbors, Turkey and Pakistan. Um, the other thing, so Shah is a pan-Islamist and a socialist so far, as I can get surprises that we have. The other thing is that he's a neutralist. I, Shah goes out of his way to have relations with the both blocks. He goes out of his way. And he, a part of this is that, you know, they say there's this theory of under the shadow of Assad, and he has come to power with the support of the US and, and the UK, and he knows it. Um, and he wants to he wants he wants to be independent. He wants to show that he's independent, that he's nobody's sort of you know he's his own person. Um, but also in some he genuinely believes in this. Whether you whatever shadow you see behind him, he believes in this. And it's in the practice. I.e., Iran, it's sometimes hard to remember. Iran has relations, extensive relations with the Soviet Union, with Bulgaria, with Romania, with Czechoslovakia, with Yugoslavia later on with China, pretty much with the entire world. And we have the record of Iranian talks with the US and the Americans are not always happy with the kind of relations Iran has, but, but he does it anyway. In fact, Iran has relations with North Vietnam, um, pretty much with any country that it could have. Um, I guess not Albania, because that, that uh, I haven't actually looked into it, but I mean, I guess Albania was an extreme example. And then he also supports the other thing, Charles is an anti-colonialist Afro-Asianist. He supports non-European states um, and acting to the UN. Um, and all of this shows itself in Iran's Israel Arab policy. Sort of the, you know, I should get going <laughs> further into this, but it's, this really does explain um, his his approach to Palestine and its conflict with the regional countries. I, he cares about the stability of his neighbors. He tries to, he tries to solve the conflict to the UN. That fifth point, sorry, I think I was yeah, sort of half explained it. I, he goes out of his way and he says, colonialism is over. He's against sort of aggressive actions by the West. He doesn't want them to tell him what to do. He says he believes they shouldn't. Uh, he shouldn't tell others what to do, and he believes in the UN because his institutions, he believes, are equal weight for the first time. To the, it's, it's interesting that today, you can in a lot of leftist parlances, you can hear UN as a den of imperialists and all that. Of course, when you look at it from the other perspective, it was, it was the opposite because the imperialism had meant that a few European states could run things how they wanted. Now, the fact that they had equal representation, even in some ways, no matter how flawed was usually taken out. So the biggest fan of the UN were the first post-colonial states at the time. And Shah aligns himself with those to a degree, to a degree, I should say. 
Um, and that's his approach to Israel. He emphasizes Iran's Muslim nature. He believes Iran should support Palestine very good. He advocates the UN, and he's very worried um, about the stabilization of other countries based on the conflict. So let's have a few, uh, let's have a few examples, as I said. But I still do like a good story. So let me take you to the morning of June 5th, 1967. This is a few days before Sean Czechoslovakia. This was following his trip to Romania. He then goes to West Germany. He then goes to Paris. In the morning of June 5th, 1967, I like to imagine very early in the morning, manager of Ostrada, who is later the head of the Air Force, I believe, and he's the head of Abu Dhabi. So that's the sort of Marines of the, of the Army. He wakes Shah up because the Iranian embassy in Paris is just informed that the war has broken up. The, the war that everyone was worried for in the Middle East, and as we can see in the archives, there's a lot of worry for, the war has broken up. Two days later, he's already in Ankara. He goes from Paris to Ankara. Shah gives an interview that you can say it's sort of historic. It's historic because it's repeated throughout from 67 to the end of Shah in 1979. Every time they talk about this, you know, as His Majesty said on June 7, 1967. And what is his position? He, he strongly condemns the occupation of Palestinian Arab lands by Israel. He says it's a form of um, aggression. He says it's a form of occupation. He says the age of these things has come to an end. In personal uh, talks later, he uses the strongest possible language. In fact, he says at some point to someone, um, I think to an American, he says, you know, um, Israel is not doing to Palestinians, uh, you know, what Hitler did to Jews in the Second World War, which is obviously an exaggeration, but he does use the, he does this use language. And, and the fascinating thing that I found in the archives is that Iran's public, private, when he talks to Israelis, when he talks to Palestinians, when he talks to the East Bloc, when he talks to the West Bloc, it says the same thing. It never changes. I... You know, you see several letters later in 1970s, Zahiri in a televised interview says Shah's position on June 7th. And the war hasn't even finished by June 7th, right? But that's the position. It's the same one, the basic resolution of the UN and the International Security Council. And then Zahiri meets Abba Aban, the foreign minister of Israel, which is one of favorite, my favorite files and documents when Abba Aban and Zahiri and some others meet in a remote in Zahiri's beautiful villas out in Hesarak. And, uh, there's a, it's a very, I'll talk about it later as well. It's a very fun sort of conversation because Zaidi also has this way of funnily discussing some of these issues. Um, but anyways, he says, you know, you know, Shah was the first head of the state to condemn the occupation of territories following the June war. Our position is entirely clear. This might be a mundane issue for you, but it's not a mundane issue if you know something about the history of Israel. And the, because Israel is used to having people say one thing to them and then something to others, right? There are many who says, well, we know you're right in the war, but we have to sort of say the right thing. But not to Iran's credit in its approach, it's, um, it's, it's, it's consistent. One of the most fascinating files at the Zahiri archives are these mostly sort of handwritten, but you know, this one is printed, a lot of not handwritten, of Iran's preparations um, in the fall of 1967 uh, for the United Nations um, General Assembly and its meetings with, um, with different states.
there are different proposals being made. There's the Yugoslav proposal, there's the joint American Soviet proposal. Um, there's sort of different Arab states have different proposals. Won't get into details here, but what I can tell you is that Iran has a very active role. And again, it is not, um, it is certainly not that US says, hey, you've got to do this, and then they do it. Um, it's anything but I, Iran pushes, and Iran pushes consistently for the goals that I mentioned earlier. Iran is worried of what the effect of a resolution would be on King Hussein. Iran is worried of what it would be its effect on the future of the Egyptian state. Iran is worried of what would be its effect on, if Israel gets away with occupying the territory, what would it be its effect on the future of the international relation? And Americans, a lot of times, are pushing the Shah in a certain way. Um, they ask certain questions in a certain way, and they don't always give the answers. Usually, Roscoe and Irish Zahedi, as you can see here, um, they have a lot of discussions, for example. Eugene Roscoe, it's, it's a, he's a, sort of the equivalent to a deputy secretary of state at the time for political affairs, in the sense, as the secretary of state for political affairs. Um, I'm gonna play a short video. This is Shah's pilgrimage, Ziyarat, to the site that is site of much fight today, Dome of Rock. Jerusalem, of course, was controlled by Jerusalem since 1959. Um, it was controlled by, before 1967, it was naturally controlled by Israel. I just play this as a sign to say, the Shah and King Hussein have some of the closest relationships in the world. They met each other in bilateral trips between Amman and Tehran, you know, something like I, 12 times in a period, uh, even more if you count throughout the entirety of their reigns. It was in these steps that King Hussein's grandfather, King Abdullah I, had been killed by a Palestinian assailant. Um, one thing about the kings of the era, they, they care about the history of kings being killed, regicide. They're worried about it. And this is an event that keeps coming. Let's see. That's, that's the Haram Sharif at the time. Before we get to Ahmed Khushchev, I'll stop this here. Um, so, the Shah's close support to King Hussein of Jordan is an important element. I, he's very worried of, of what will happen to King Hussein as a result of the conflict. He tells Israelis, if King Hussein talks to you, don't make it public, for example. One of the current concurrent conflicts. And as the Shah, um, let me just clarify here that a lot of times I mean the Iranian, whoever is representative of Iran. Because surprise, surprise, by the way, it's about all this sort of internal stuff that we hear about, the, you know, this guy had that position, that guy had that position. Iran does have a consistent position that is followed by whomever is doing the talk. Um, Zahedi and Shah very closely coordinate. I'll tell you of one funny sort of thing that they come to conflict later. But, um, okay, so King Hussein, right? The Shah really cares about the stability of Jordan. He's, of course, against the occupation in 1967. He's worried about the effect of Israeli um, discussions with King Hussein becoming public. Um, and he's worried about what happens in the internal affairs of, of Jordan. Can't give you a lot of details here, but I imagine some of you know, right? So when he talks to the PLO later on, um, you know, he's like, be kind to King Hussein. 
you know, don't overthrow him throughout the Black September and all that. So this is important. And I, and I say this as a standing because it's not just King Hussein. He cares about the stability of the Arab countries of the region. So he's very understanding when Israelis tell him, well, these Arab countries are against us and all that. He, Shah usually, Shah or Adi Shazali, they respond back that, look, they have their own domestic constituencies and they're worried of what happens if they take a two pro-Israeli position, they'll lose their, um, they'll lose their, how do we go? Okay. Yeah, and you see in RCD, i.e. with Turkey and uh, Iraq, sorry, Turkey and uh, Pak pa Pakistan, he talks about the necessity of strengthening King Hussein. To Abu Aban al-Shizahedi in December 1970, he says, God forbid, if something happens to Jordan, i.e. if King Hussein is overthrown, what will follow in Lebanon, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia? I key to Shah's approach is uh, making sure that the radicals in the Arab world don't come into power in more countries. By radical, we mean Baptist, sort of Arab nationalists. So what I have there. Um, yeah, Palestine as a Muslim issue. This is a message. It's a, believe it or not, a much, much shortened, summarized message that reads in much beautiful sort of Persian, very Arabic inflected and very sort of long to the president of Iraq, President RF at the time. Now, in Iraq, what Shah was worried for already happened. Key event in his life is the revolution of 1958, when the Hashemite family is overthrown in the revolution by Hassan, and Iraq follows, a, you know, basically to 2003, from 1958 to 2003, a succession of groups that are all either Arab nationalists or Baptists uh, come to power. President Arif is one of the Arab nationalists, known to be close to President Nasser at the time, a man who had a heavy conflict with Iran, of course, throughout this period. But Shah appeals to him as a fellow Muslim because I always like to say it's a Muslim issue. This is again not just in this message. Throughout, when, when representatives of Shah meet with Arab Muslim countries, they say that they care about Islam, um, that they care about Palestine as a Muslim issue, that it's a sort of civilization issue that they care about because they believe that this is part of his legitimacy. Um, that's that sort of approach. And they, you know, they sort of, it is not just words, right? They give support in different ways, they give support in the UN. Um, they care about this aspect, which is also explains why the ties with Israel are secret. This is one of my favorite sort of fun period. There's a so Iran has very it's very open secret. Like Iran has extensive ties with Israel, as I said. People come and go. There's energy. There's advisors. But despite that, it's officially sort of it's sort of officially not recognized. There's a, there's a famous example that I read in sort of Lior Center book. I think there's a Moroccan envoy who is talking to an Iranian diplomat and says, I just saw an El Al flight take off from Tehran. And the Iranian diplomat says, no, his majesty, as his majesty says, we don't have recognized sites. He says, but I just saw a flight. And he says, well, I believe your majesty more than your eyes, <laughs> right? So, and here is, there's a very interesting sort of example because Israel basically says, Israel informs the foreign ministry that there's a plane that has to pass, you know, sort of stop in Tehran for an hour. But because there's a diplomat, could you send even a lower level of foreign ministry for protocol? So that, you know, we recognize there's an Israeli governmental delegation here. Um, and Zahidis says that I accepted and I also sent, asked Nasiri to send this spy basically to see what's going on now in your stuff. But it shows that they're respectful to Israel, right? They, they do the protocol, but also they're very, you know, when Abu Aban and, and Zahidi meet in Hesarak, you know, Zahedi says, well, you're welcome here. How do you like Iran? And Abu Aban says, I'm like, this is great. Wouldn't it be great to meet in the actual foreign ministry if you recognize us? And then Zahedi says, well, 
you know, if you want that, maybe you need to bring the keys. So you said basically November 22nd resolution, that's just the resolution 242 of 1967. If you follow the conflict, it's and so Saudi's position, basically what is Saudi Arabia's position today? It says, you want peace and relations with us? Make peace with your neighbors in the occupation and you can have open relations. We have no problem. And he goes out of his day and says, you know, he says Palestinians have a, you know, have a realist faction. There are, you know, there are those who recognize Israel, there are those who don't, but obviously those who don't are wrong because they're ignoring history. Um, but it, the position is again very consistent. He also says Arabs would recognize you, but it might take credit for 40 years. I'll let you do your calculus and do the sort of recent events to see if we have a Nostradamus in, in late Adish Zahedi. But uh, there definitely seems to be something. Um, the, the other fascinating meeting than, that I could see in the archives is Shah's meeting with Tito. Again, if you want to know what importance the archives have. So Shah meets with Marshal Tito of Yugoslavia, right? This important event in the history of the Cold War Martin. This is what we have before the archives, pretty much, right? This is the press reporting that is done. Tito went to Iran, stuff, right? I exaggerated a little bit. There's, there is some more, there's sort of reports given to the other ministries, but now we have everything that was said in the meeting. It's right in that room, you know, two minutes walk from here. There's a full report of what Tito and Shah talked about. Marshal Tito, of course, being the, one of the founders of the non-aligned movement, a leading sort of neutralist proponent. Um, you would think they shouldn't get along so much with Shah, which is supposed to be sort of so pro-West, pro-Cold War, but actually they do and they have a lot of common approaches and they talk about the common thing that they talk about. Mind you, this is Marshal Tito, one of the closest people to President Nasser of Egypt. There are many scholars who believe, in fact, that Nasser can be sort of called a Titoist, perhaps, in some of his ideas. So you would think, you know, they should have a very different sort of approach to Shah. But what they agree on at the time, as you can see here, you know, what they sort of complain together about, Tito says, yeah, I also tell the Egyptians, you have to accept Israel, it exists. You can't just pretend it doesn't exist. You can't just want to uh, sort of do it out of existence. Shah says, I know, not a drag, you know, they do that. And then, you know, Tito says, you know, when I meet with the Zionists, I sort of, you know, I bash them and say, you're terrible and you're doing these things. But then they found out what I told the Arabs. So they understand that I actually have sort of a logical view. My point is these guys repeatedly, as we can say, in Shah's meeting with Czechoslovakia, in Shah's meeting with, with the president of Czechoslovakia, in Shah's meetings with Soviet officials, this is not the meeting of uh, two opposing sides of the Cold War debate that you know, people would imagine. Here as well, there's a lot of conversations about um, what, can a, what can a world of independent countries that are not sort of pushed around by, by big powers look like. Okay, getting toward the end. Yeah, so let me just say one more thing here before my last slide. The, this is work that I'm sort of undergoing. I'm interested in it as myself. I mean, as my work goes on, and I found much new material in here. I'm not done yet. Then I can stay a few more weeks. I can finish it. Um, but this is Iran's relation with Egypt. It's well known that Iran and Nasser didn't have a good relation. In fact, Egypt early on cuts relations with Iran in the early 1960s. Egypt gives funding um, to 
basically, Egypt tries to fund an armed group uh, against the government of Iran. People like Ibrahim Yazdi, Ali Shayati, they go to Cairo for a sort of short period. The organization of Sama is founded. Nasser starts calling the Persian Gulf the A word, you know, so that, of course, that doesn't make the shock um, happy. By the way, this is also, I love that in the, in the document, it shows up. If any person says Gulf, just Gulf alone, probably having Gulf at the time. Zahidi or Shah, they don't wait. They don't like wait. They cut the middle of the words and they say something. Um, in fact, they say that George Brown is a sort of leading British diplomat. Zahidi says, hey, I sorry, I thought you went to school. Aren't you like an educated person? Why do you use terms like this? And then George Brown says, look, this is the new British policy. And George Brown basically says, look, my document that I have here says the Persian Gulf. I just wanted to cut one word. You know, don't say Persian every time. So they're very sensitive about this. Or with Kuwaitis, um, Kuwaitis complain and say, look, it is the Persian Gulf, but some people just write Arab Gulf in the post and it's a trade, it's a people can you not return all their posts <laughs> when they just happen to write everything. So it, this is a key issue for Iran. But at any rate, um, unlike what is, so we all know that Shah and Egypt, Iran and Egypt resumed diplomatic relations in 1970. President Nasser dies in 1970. We know that they have a very close relationship with Sadat later on. So this seems to explain itself, right? Um, relations, Sadat Khan's new relations. Not true, not true. In fact, the resumption of diplomatic relations between Iran and Egypt is a few weeks before the death of Nasser and has a consistent process before. Zahedi cares about this, talks about it in different meetings at different times. Anytime he meets a lot of his Arab presidents, he says, we want better relations with Egypt. We support many of the Egyptian demands. We're not pro-Israel. We're happy to have relations with Egypt. Um, and that's the line that they push. Of course, he also has very tough words for Nasser. In fact, in one meeting, he gets into hot water with Shah, where he says, and excuse my language, but it's in the archives, he says, well, I'll tell you what I think about Nasser. Nasser is a prostitute. He sells himself to, um, to different sort of lenders and Shah really gets angry at him because he says it's not diplomatic language, you can't use language like this. Um, but these two things, now the fun work of the historian is to look at when the changes happen and how does Shah sort of, how does Iran try to explain it in that But I'll end with saying, I had a 10 minute version of this talk before, which I ended with this slide, and I wanna end it here again after I've done all the work here. I'll end with saying, two meetings within two weeks of Arbitri Zahedi, Iran's prime minister at the time, with two different figures show something of Iran's approach. December 14, he met, as I said, referred to a few times in my talk, in Hesarak, he meets with Abu Iran. The position that Iran puts there is clear. He wants the occupation of the territories to end. In no uncertain terms, he condemns them on, on principle. He says, this Iran doesn't believe you can, it's land grabbing, strong. He condemns them in a strategic result. He says it leads to the weakening of different Arab states in the region. He conditions. 41 years before the Saudi Arabia did the Arab peace initiative of land for peace. He says, you want peace in Israel? We're happy to have peace with you, but you need to end the war. I need to end the occupation. And Abu Aban sort of uses diplomatic niceties and he's all oh, with the Persians. No, he says, we love this country, things are great. Iran has a very consistent position. He says, well, you know, thank you for changing the topic, but you need to end the occupation repeatedly. And when he meets with Khalid al-Hassan, one of the leaders of the PLO, um, and other, there are other meetings with the 
Iran offers support to the cause. Says we believe that the, so far as territory is definitely liberated, we believe. So far as the Muslim cause, we believe in it. Iran, of course, offers half a million dollars. You can see the actual check that was Milani had written about before, but I saw the actual check in the archives. Um, Iran gives to Yasser Arafat. You can see Yasser Arafat's huge letter of thank you to his great, his majesty, the Shah, who thanks him for the support. I looked up a, another speech of Yasser Arafat within, I think, 72 hours of his notes where he was speaking to some sort of Iranian groups who were fighting together with the Palestinians in sort of Lebanon. And he says, the Shah is the head of the imperialist henchman of the region, but he got money from him at the same time. And he, um, as I said, thanked him in that way. Diplomatic necessities, and I sort of put that down. Iran is also clear as to in Khaledas, and it says the same thing. For example, there's a very funny sort of, this is December 1970, right? So September 1970, Black September happened. The Jordan instability was a PLO. And then the Khaledasan says, oh, we also care about King of Jordan, and you know, we, we don't want to do anything to stabilize Jordan. And then Zaidi says, well, you know, I, Hijacking four planes in two weeks and taking them is probably not great for the security of the country. Um, it's also the case that the, the Palestinian representative brings up possibility of Iran giving armed support. And I kid you not, in the actual diplomatic files, it says, whenever they said that, I just changed the topic, which is a great, uh, great diplomatic tactic to just sort of say, oh, isn't the better nice when they sort of talk about that? But I think the two meanings together. With everything else that I have babbled about for the last 40, 50 minutes, shows that Iran did have a consistent approach to the Palestinian Israel conflict and to the Arab Israel That the basis of the approach was what Tehran regarded as Iran's national interest. That it was certainly not a one sided support of Israel. And that, in fact, was predicated of what it believed was a just resolution to the conflict. That it did not give concessions to Israel um, whenever they asked for it. That it did not give concessions to the US on, on the request of the US to Israel whenever they asked for it. And that it cared at least as much as it cared for how its relations with the US and Israel was. At, in the same amount it cared about the, its standing as a Muslim country, and is standing with its neighbors in the Arab and Muslim world. Adopting that view, we can see that if you study the Iranian foreign policy, and if you see the, study Iranian actors based on their own words and their own actions, you're going to have a different view than if you see them as spoken in the words of others. And now that these archives here make this possible, I hope you can have this corrective view. It will, no matter what you think about the Shah, how much you hate or love, as we have heated twists in Iran today, it will give us a better image, a more clear image of how our country's foreign policy made, was made. And how the Cold War in which Shah and Iran were, were important actors, um, give us also a better image of that global code. Thank you for your patience.